everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I have a very special guest with me today I am so excited about. It's a totally different part of the medical field because I've never had a doctor on the show before. So I'm really excited. Dr. Aman Abuzaid is on. Hello, Aman. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. You are the not only a medical doctor, but a the the co-founder and CEO of Incredible Health, the nurse staffing agency. Yeah, it's like more of a career marketplace is how we refer to it. Oh, yes. okay. Well, see, yeah. I've been saying the wrong thing all this time. <laughs> <laughs> so tell our listeners a little bit about, first of all, about yourself and how your medical journey and how you kind of got through medical school and what has brought you to be in the CEO and co-founder of this big corporation. Yeah. So I guess by background, I'm a medical doctor. Actually, after medical school, I decided not to pursue residency. And I went into management consulting instead, where I worked in hospital operations and strategy. After that, I did my MBA at Wharton, which is a school, a business school in the East Coast, and uh, then moved out to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And that's really where I discovered startups and entrepreneurship. And I was a product manager at an early stage healthcare technology company. And that's really where I learned to work with software engineers and designers and data scientists and what it takes to launch software products and grow a business. And after a few years of that, decided to leave there with one of the, with one of the top software engineers uh, to start Incredible Health. And so we founded Incredible Health about two years ago. And honestly, the idea or the thought behind it is a lot of my friends and family members are doctors and surgeons, and they were often complaining about understaffing. I'm guessing you and a lot of people in your audience probably face this day to day. And, you know, there was just a lot of frustration from, from the doctors about, about understaffing, about uh, not wanting to rely necessarily on contract workers to take care of their patients. And at the same time, my co-founder and, and chief technology officer, his name is Rome Portlock. Uh, he's a software engineer, went to MIT. His sisters are all nurses. And they were saying, it takes me two, three months at least to get my next job, even though I'm experienced, I'm qualified. And their experience is, you know, when I submit my application to the hospitals, I can submit to 10, 15 of them. And most of the time, I never even hear back. This is probably, I don't know if this is a situation that you've come across, Tina, or... It really is. And I that's so interesting that I hear you say that, because when I think about the process of trying to get another job, I think that that's probably what keeps nurses just kind of sitting still where they are and not moving forward to try to move into another position to maybe get more money at another hospital after they've gotten their experience, because it is grueling sometimes. When I first graduated from nursing school, I applied to several hospitals and then I heard back from this one hospital and I went and took that job. And then after I accepted that job, I heard back from other and it's I'm talking two months later and I'm thinking, yeah, why did you wait so long? Because I really wanted to work at that hospital. But now that I've accepted this job, I'm not going to go back, you know, and I'm not going to go back on my word. And so I was just I'm sorry, I've already accepted another job. Why does it take so long? Right. And this this. Exactly. So this experience that you're describing happens to so many nurses across this entire country. And we figured there is this huge disconnect here. There just has to be a better way. And so we came up with this crazy concept that's working very well, where we make the hospitals apply to the nurses instead of waiting for the nurses to apply to them. 
I'll, I love that idea. Yeah. I'll go into more of the solution a, uh, a little bit, but you did ask a really great question earlier and that's how, wh- why is this even happening? So it's really interesting. Like in 2018, healthcare became the biggest labor sector in the U S in terms of number of workers. And, but our, our demand for healthcare as a country keeps growing because our population is aging and we simply do not have enough workers in the system. So there is a massive shortage of healthcare workers, and the nursing shortage alone is one of the top uh, skilled labor shortages that we have in this country. So you would think that you know it shouldn't be hard for a nurse to get a job, but what's actually happening on the ground is that these hospitals are, often have very small recruiting teams, and these recruiting teams are just they they have tools and processes that honestly really haven't changed since like the early '90s. You know, they post a job and hope something happens and they have to sift through all of those applicants manually and they need to match them to the right jobs manually. And it's just a ton of manual work. And so if each hospital recruiter is trying to fill anywhere from 80 to 120 jobs and they're not armed with any kind of software or, or automation, it's, a, it's, you know, their job is super challenging as well. And of course, you're going to have people experiencing what we call the black hole of HR. That's when you submit your application and you never hear back. So that's really the underlying reason of what's going on here. And so we've incredible health in addition to being the place where employers apply to nurses. And it, it, it is a website at incrediblehealth.com. So what ha- the way it works is that nurses come onto our site, they create their profile, and really they just sit back and relax while employers are applying to them. We do have an internal team of nurses who helps them clean up their profile and like present themselves the best way possible. And then the hospital recruiters, they log in and they send interview requests to the nurses that they want to meet. And so we have really done a lot of the heavy lifting on behalf of the hospital recruiters because we have already cleaned up nurse profiles. We have screened them. We have made sure to remove nurses that have malpractice records. You know, sometimes you have strange situations like that. And uh, what the end result of all of this is that nurses get hired in less than 30 days where it normally takes 82 days. That's the national average. And then we've, we've dramatically increased the hiring efficiency by 25 times compared to more traditional job boards. One of the people that co-hosts with me from time to time that that comes on here and guest hosts mm-hmm. is Allison. She's a nurse manager where I work. And she was crazy about this idea. She said, this is amazing. I This would be so much easier. So she loved the idea. Yeah, quality suffers, definitely. Yeah, and the other situation that it creates is burnout, right? It means for those, for those nurses that are, well, whether you're a new grad or an experienced nurse, uh, you're often asked to work overtime. Right. And, and that happens over and over and over again. And, you know, the, the stats are when a nurse is consistently working beyond the eight hour or 12 hour shift, he or she is 2.5 times more likely to quit. Nurse suicide rates are, high, are, are 45% higher than the average population. And so it's, it, it is really concerning to the health of the nurses, the fact that they're always getting asked to work overtime. Right. And nurses, just by their nature, because the whole reason that they become nurses is that they are a nurturing type person. They're the kind of people that sometimes have a hard time saying no. So they they're not necessarily working overtime. Well, they're not always working overtime because they're being forced to. I know there are some hospitals that will do that. They feel obliged to. They feel they don't want to let their manager down. They don't want to let their other coworkers down. They think, oh, 
I know how I feel when it's short staff and I, I don't want them to have to go through that. And they'll drive on in, yeah. even though it's, you know, the fourth 12 hour shift in a row or, or something crazy like that. And, and it's just really hard. I love this concept. I think it's, it's a no brainer and it needs, I really hope that it can go nationwide and, and, and it can just become the standard instead of it, you know, the other way around. That's like, filling out that application multiple times to all these different hospitals. It's it's there is a lot to have to do to go and fill out all that information, upload your license, your certifications, all the extra stuff that you have, put in your references and all of that stuff and then do that over and over again to different hospitals. Absolutely. It's time consuming. It's stressful. We have some data on that, you know, that the average hospital application takes 45 minutes to complete. Oh, yeah. The, the the profile creation on Incredible Health is less than five minutes and you just do it yeah, once. Yeah, that's amazing. So the great thing about this, in addition to it uh, resonating with nurses, I mean, the nurses love it, as you can imagine, because they just sit back and relax mm -hmm. and employers are applying to them. Mm -hmm. And you can see a lot of our reviews and our testimonials on our Facebook page, our Google page. We often have nurses that tell us like, you got me, I got my dream job through this. This is the fastest I've ever uh, gotten a job you made my job search experience delightful instead of stressful, uh, which is fantastic. But the other thing is that this is really resonating with the hospitals, which is important. And, you know, our mission at Incredible Health is to help healthcare professionals live better lives and help them find and do their best work. And really, we can only achieve that mission with hospitals because they are ultimately the ones who are employing the nurses. We only do permanent, permanent nurses. We don't do any traveler or contract uh, nurses. And so these, you know, these, these nurses are becoming employees of the hospitals. And the reason it's really resonating with the hospitals is because it all has to do with their finances and their quality of care. Well, I just can see so many benefits from it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been exciting, you know, in, in our first two years alone, we expanded across California and working with over 150 hospitals that includes top academic medical centers like Cedars-Sinai and Stanford, big health systems like HCA, and lots of community hospitals too. And we are, we are expanding across the country. Uh, we now are, have a presence in Dallas, in Miami, in Chicago, in New York City. And our aim is to, be, is to take this offering and this product and this marketplace across the entire country and be, just become the default way or the new way that nurses get hired. I hope so. This is this is just really like I said it's a no-brainer. It's the way it should be done. It makes perfect sense for both the hospital and the nurses. So hopefully this is something that will catch on and it will just get bigger and bigger and it's going to just turn into the new norm for everyone. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on here. We're going to get into the next portion of our show, which of course this week, since I have a doctor on, I decided to do some yeah. doctor stories. And this one, I thought it would be kind of interesting to do this one. I, My husband and I were watching, I know you guys are going to be shocked, but I love watching 48 Hours and all of that, all those true crime shows. And so crime. Yeah. we were watching this and this show came on and we watched the whole thing. And of course, normally I'm trying to find ones that are that pertain to some sort somehow the medical field about a nurse or doctor or some some sort of medical professional. And this one was not at all the the people involved were not medical professionals. And but I, I'm just watching it anyway, just to be watching it. Toward the end of it, I saw the connection. And I was because I remember thinking, whoa, how shocking, when I put it all together, that 
um, of how this happened and why it happened the way it did and how scary it is that something like that can happen in our criminal justice system. So you guys sit back and, and just listen. This is a really interesting story. And uh, it's I think we'll learn something here, hopefully, because um, it's something if any of us can be jurors at some point, it's good to be kind of armed with the knowledge that this sort of thing can happen. So this is about Adam Kaufman and his wife, Lena. Adam and Lena were a young married couple. And um, on November 7th of 2007, this was a while back, Adam called 911 from their home in Florida and he was hysterical. He was obvious. You could just hear how upset he was. He was a, a Florida real estate developer. And he told the dispatcher, he said, I woke up and my wife is unconscious in the bathroom. He was really screaming. And it's it, the 48 hours episode that I was watching played the 911 audio. And it's really gut wrenching to hear how upset he was because he was basically just screaming. He didn't really sound like himself. I don't know. Did you did you watch the actual video or did you just re- look through the article? I, I read the article. Yeah. The 911 call is just it's just awful to hear because he is so upset. And I I think it's kind of one of those things where you're like, well, are they obviously people call 911 to try to cover up something that they've done? And, and you're never sure, you know, when you're especially when you watch a show like this, whether it happened or not. And, and I wasn't either, but I think either this guy is a really good actor or he really was shocked and upset, but he said that she is unconscious. He said she's dying. He was screaming. And when the paramedics got there, they rushed her to the hospital. She was still breathing, but she died later on that day. So one of the officers that responded said that he touched the hood of Adam's car. And this is like six o'clock in the morning. It's really early in the morning. And and plus Adam said it. he just woke up and saw that she wasn't in the bed. And then so he said that the hood of Adam's car was warm. And another officer said that only one side of their bed had been slept in. So just just something to note as a detail. So they, I think they were skeptical that he just went in there and found his wife in the condition that she was in, slumped on the floor and appear, appeared to be dying at the time and then ultimately did. And of course, the first person that they're going to suspect is always going to be the spouse or the significant other. And especially when they're right there and it's six o'clock in the morning and there's just no one else to blame for that. So the Miami-Dade this happened in South Florida. The Miami-Dade County medical examiner was Dr. Chester Gwen conducted the autopsy. And even though the, the forensic pathologist found injuries on her upper back and um, on her chin, they found some abrasions. But they basically, this medical examiner ruled that her death was undetermined. The cause of death was undetermined. So at first, it was just a horrible, tragic thing that happened. They weren't sure what happened. The the Kaufman said that she had had a spray tan done that day, and they were wondering if somehow there was some sort of reaction to the spray tan that caused her to maybe maybe an allergic reaction or respiratory or something like that. But it was several hours before this happened. It was like maybe eight to ten hours before so that she had the spray tan. So there was just some speculations, you know, that they were throwing out because they they just weren't sure. And then. 18 months went by, and all of a sudden, they decide, well, actually, 
she died by mechanical asphyxiation. And this was because another medical examiner, Dr. Bruce Hyma, reviewed the case for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because the, the police department was kind of like just continuing to think about this or, and mulling over it and thinking, you know, let's look back at this because it seems kind of odd. She did have the marks around her neck and it, there really was no medical answer for why she died. And so they just kept looking into it. And then so another medical examiner came along and said, no, mechanical asphyxiation. So, of course, that, I mean, a mechanical, basically, she was strangled. So, I mean, what do you you think about this? What what do you think about someone who, if if we go by his story, if, if what he's saying is true, he wakes up in the middle of the night, he goes into the, into the bathroom, he finds his wife, what in, in his mind looks like she's dying, she's obviously in, in distress, and then she does end up dying. And then a year and a half later, you know, he goes through all that grieving, the gr- whole grieving process and everything, and, and it's a year and a half later, and all of a sudden, he's, they're saying, oh, actually, she was murdered. Yeah, this story is just so tragic. Unfortunately, it's a common story that we hear. Um, I was looking up some stats before, before joining you on this podcast and the CDC, the, you know, center of um, disease in, in, in the U S estimates that 15, 55% of female homicide victims are uh, killed by their partner. So that it's just, it, it, I guess it fits, it definitely does fit a pattern. It definitely does. So maybe we shouldn't be so surprised, right? Yeah. We did a show a few months ago. I don't remember who my guest host was, but we, I I did a show a few months ago where the good nurse was a nurse who is compiling a database of all of the women who have died at the hands of a partner. In other words, someone that they know. And so it is un. It was I. That story was uh, was unbelievable. This nurse was. She was a school nurse, and in her her spare time, just as a hobby, she decided to start doing this because she wanted to honor these women. Because it, what you just said, that's what she discovered, and she can believe all of the women who die all the time. And a lot of times, it's because she's trying to leave, and just out of a just sheer sense of control, and just like no one. If I can't have you, no one is. And it's it's shocking and horrifying how common it is for women to die this way. It's and so she wanted to try to because a lot of times they, it sort of it happens so often that it doesn't really get talked about that much. It's not really news anymore to people. And so she wanted to honor their 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 lives and and have their names out there. And so she's compiling this database of just that one year. It was just one year. And she said when she finished doing that year, I believe it was 2018 that she was doing, she was going to try to go back every year before and start and just kind of compile this huge database, which to me, it sounds overwhelming. And, but I think that's wonderful to try to, to bring awareness because it's, it's just kind of, it's really uh, something that's you can't really explain why, because these men are obviously throwing their own lives away at the same time. They're that's how obsessed they are. I def, I just feel like there needs to be a, a, a rewiring of thinking for for some of these people. Yeah, absolutely, and we need to do a lot more to prevent this from happening too. Oh, sure, absolutely, and a lot of times it has to do with 
the access to weapons because there's a lot of times it is an impulsive thing that happens and it's just well this weapon is here and before they it's just within a snap of a finger it's done and and women do that and women we got plenty of those stories women do these things to men too yes so <laughs> we do we must we can't leave that out that little detail out either so here we are 18 months later and Adam Kaufman, and he is, by the way, just incidentally, is a twin. He has a twin brother who looks exactly like him. And it is absolutely uncanny to see the two of them in this episode where they're talking to one and then the other, and they they just look like the exact same person. It's just crazy. And his family is backing him. Of course, you know, 100%, they're, they're saying he's innocent. But they're going forward. The prosecution is going forward. They charge him with second-degree murder. They have a bond hearing, and the defense reveals that their version of the death is going to be that she had a history of fainting spells. She had put, she had uh, had the spray tan done earlier in the evening, the night before, and that she had a, an allergic reaction, what they called a violent allergic reaction, causing respiratory failure. And that when she collapsed, she fell with her neck draped over the magazine. There was a magazine rack in the floor right in front of the toilet and that she hit the magazine rack and that her neck went onto the rack. And that's what caused the ligature marks there. So that was their defense. And, and it, it kind of blew up in the media as the spray tan defense. And that's what the media kind of grabbed onto. And it sounds a little bit silly. It makes me think of the Twinkie defense back, back in the day when they, I, I can't remember this. The It was a big case. I don't remember what it, who it was that the defense, maybe like the guy that shot Ronald Reagan or someone like that, but they try to do the, the Twinkie defense, which is basically he had too much sugar and and it caused some sort of reaction. So that's what made me think of this when I'm like, the spray tan, this is crazy. A spray tan can cause, I mean, I can see it if it, if, if you, maybe if you have an allergic reaction right then, but, uh, you know, eight to 10 hours later, that seems a little bit odd to me for, you know, for respi- for respiratory failure, but for that sort of reaction. So then his trial started on May 7th, 2012. That's several years after. So they, their whole family is really going through a lot for several years over all of this. Not only losing their family member, Lena, who was this wonderful, gorgeous young woman who was just brilliant and just full of life and personality but they're obviously having to drag be drugged into court and through this whole mess and it was just awful so they did this jury selection and the defense attorney revealed that while she was basically a new defense and said that while she's sitting on the toilet she had a heart attack and fell forward with her neck hitting the bar of the magazine rack and so they go through this whole thing and the the prosecutor, Joe Mansfield, in his opening uh, speech, says that she was healthy, active, in the best shape of her life. And she was. If you look at her, she was young and just looked like she was in great shape. You would never think somebody like that. When I think of respiratory failure, I think of PCU patients where I work. And that's we see a lot of respiratory failure patients. And they a lot of times are COPD Patients who've smoked their whole lives, you know, they're usually in their like 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s because they've smoked for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And 
they're in respiratory failure because of that. Or they go into respiratory failure because they're in CHF exacerbation and they've got fluid, so much fluid they can't breathe. You know, just not this lovely, really active and great, looks like great physical health woman that all of a sudden goes into respiratory failure and dies. Doesn't really fit. So what they decide to do is, or what it's going to come down to, is whether or not she died of natural, basically just natural causes, had a reaction, woke up, and I guess and they're saying she woke up in the morning, not able to breathe, ends up in the bathroom, husband has no idea what's going on, then he finds her, or somehow they end up in an argument at six o'clock in the morning and he loses his temper because they're charging him with second degree murder. They're not saying that it is in any way premeditated or they're saying that they were in an argument and he lost his cool and in a fit of rage killed her. And the thing is, though, there was no real evidence that their marriage was in any any sort of trouble. There was no evidence that he was having an affair or she was having an affair or that they really argued that much. You really couldn't find anybody, even in her family, her friends, no one that could give a real reason why he would have done this or would have indicated. Usually you would see something in someone. That's right. Yeah. So the motive wasn't well established by the prosecution. Mm-mm. It didn't. It's kind of hard to imagine someone just going along, everything's fine. They seem like this wonderful, happy couple and no one in there. Usually there's someone, her best friend, her mother, someone you would think she would have confided in like, I'm afraid of him. He gets mad easily, something, but there was nothing like that. And so even her, her own mother was in his court and even testified on his behalf. Because she just did not believe that he did this. She just didn't think there was any possible way that, that he would have done something like this. And my thing is, I, I certainly do enough of these, these stories to know that sometimes there are things like this that happen and you don't know. that You don't always know people and what's going on in their mind and what's going on in their personal life behind closed doors. Some people are very private and they're really good at keeping that stuff hidden from even their closest friends and family. But... Still, it played a little bit of a part in this. So Bruce Hyma, who is the one that that decided that she did die from strangulation and not a heart attack, he took the stand. He did testify that that it was not a heart attack. Dr. Tracy Baker was a a plastic surgeon who had done a breast enhancement for uh, Lena. And he told the jury that when he examined her a few months before her death, she was in good health. The defense attorney asked Dr. Baker, the, the, the plastic surgeon, on cross-examination if Lena could have been lying to him about her medical history. Because what he was saying is, well, all you really know is what she told you. If, if she, and, and if she really wanted to have the breast augmentation, maybe she wouldn't have told you if she was experiencing fainting spells and that sort of thing because she was afraid that maybe you wouldn't do it. And he did answer yes, that that is possible that she did was not forthcoming about something like that that could have been happening. Because 
Even her mother said that there had been times when she had had some fainting spells before that were really unexplained. And they begged her to go to the doctor about it. And she just didn't want to. She just felt like that's silly. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I just stood up too fast or, you know, what, you know, how people are. I don't like going to the doctor either. So I can see just kind of making an excuse to not do it. I just, I know I hadn't drunk enough water or whatever. I'm just dehydrated. So Dr. Chester Gwynn, the forensic pathologist who had performed the autopsy back in 2007, testified that the injuries he found on her body had not been caused by emergency personnel trying to revive her because that was one of the defenses as well. Like, well, you know, because she did have those injuries. And so they had the pathologist say, no, that's not where those injuries came from. It wouldn't have been from them trying to perform chest compressions, mouth-to-mouth, whatever it was. And, and Adam Kaufman had apparently done that before as well. He was trying to, but the pathologist said, no, that's not worth, that wouldn't have been caused by trying to revive her. So then they cross-examined Dr. Gwynn, and he admitted that on April 12, 2012, he had said in his expert opinion that the cause of her death was still a mystery. So this is 2012, several years after it happened. He was the initial one that said it was undetermined. So he got, the defense was really good, and they got him to admit they were getting the prosecution's witnesses to admit things that really helped them. So the the forensic pathologist also said that Dr. Hyma, before he ruled the death a homicide by strangulation, had not consulted with him. He didn't ask him about his findings. He just, you know, on his own determined that it was, uh, you know, mechanical asphyxiation. Then a friend of Lena got on the stand, Larissa, on behalf of the prosecution. And it's kind of interesting. This kept happening. When she got on the stand, she ended up, hep- she ended up helping the prosecution as well. Or, or I'm sorry, she, hel- she ended up helping the defense as well. She described the relationship between Adam and Lena as loving and that 10 hours before her death in anticipation of Adam's brother, Seth, his twin brother, uh, um, in anticipation of her wedding, that she had gotten a spray tan. So she hurt. I'm not really sure what the prosecution was thinking, putting her on the stand, because she really helped the defense, you know, by saying that that they were that she, they were a loving couple. The police officer, Robert Myers, said that he overheard, and this is the one who, that was at the hospital the day she died. He he got on the stand and said that he overheard that Adam tell three different versions of what he had seen that morning in the bathroom. So according to that officer, Adam said he had found her neck resting on the toilet bowl. And, you know, the story was that it landed, her, her neck landed on the magazine rack. That was supposedly the initial story. But this officer says it was her neck was on the, or her head was draped over the toilet bowl. And of course, the toilet, the toilet bowl, I don't care what kind of toilet bowl it is, it's not going to cause that kind of ligature looking, you know, strangulation mark. So 
then another story was that her body was slumped over the toilet. So there was one story that her neck was over the toilet bowl. Another one was her whole body was over the toilet. And then the, the final story was that her head was over the magazine rack. And of course, they're, they're, they're saying that the reason that he did that is that it fits more with the fact that that caused those marks and that he didn't have anything to do with that. So on cross-examination again, this defense attorney got the witness to admit that none of that information was included in his police report. So he got on the stand and, and testified to all of this, but it wasn't in the police report. Are you kind of surprised that they would allow him to testify to something like that all these years later that was not even in the report? Yeah, it's pretty surprising to me. This whole this whole case is just crazy I know, to me. I know. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's, like, I can't believe something like this can happen in our justice system. I know. So Dr. Jaime retook the stand to explain why it took 18 months to declare her case or, or her cause and manner of death as a strangulation homicide. And he attributed the passage of, uh, passage of time to delayed toxicological reports and the fact that he wanted to make sure that he was making the right call. So when he was cross-examined by the defense, the defense attorney pretty much accused him of caving in to pressure from the prosecutor because what he's saying is, you know, you had 18 months is a long time and you go that long and don't say anything and then finally decide that it's a homicide. Are you sure you weren't maybe feeling some pressure from the prosecution because they were wanting, they were, I guess, I guess the prosecutor gets a hold of something like this. There's a, there's a case that we talk about all the time on the show in Nashville, a nurse from Vanderbilt who all sorts of things happened this day, but she basically pulled out Vecaronium from the Omni, from the, the Pyxis, reconstituted it, went down to radiology, injected it into a woman's IV who was supposed to be getting a PET scan. And the woman was very anxious and needed something to calm her down. And she was uh, supposed to take Versed, midazolam, and she took Vecaronium, which is a neuromuscular blocker, blocking agent, and something that's used to intubate patients. And you can't breathe, so you have to be on a mechanical ventilate, ventilator once once it's injected. Well, she injected it, went off to the emergency room to do more tasks, and the woman ended up dying from, from that. From Basically, she went into respiratory failure and died. And so because of this med medical error, med medication error made by this nurse, it did result in the woman's death. But there is a prosecutor in Nashville that went and is charging her criminally and has charged her with reckless homicide and neglect of an elder, elderly patient. And she's facing no telling how many years in prison. And so this is an ongoing story. And so when I, now that I've been studying this about Redonda for months now, and I've gotten so uh, really involved in what goes on in the criminal justice system and how I, and I understand how the pro prosecutor can get a hold of a bone like this. And it, you just feel like you cannot talk reason to them. So now I see this from different eyes. I used, I used to think that if a prosecutor went after a person it was because they probably did something you know there's a pretty good chance because surely they wouldn't go prosecuting someone if they didn't 
But now I see this and the and this defense attorney. I would I, before I probably would have thought, oh, this defense attorney is just being slick. He's just trying to cast doubt. And of course, the prosecutor, what what motive could they possibly have? But now I, I see things differently. It's not. I don't think everything's all cut and dried. And I, it's 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 yeah. Things are not black. That's exactly right. Things are not black and it's white. It's scary. It's very scary. Yep. So then the prosecutor on direct examination of a friend of Lena's asked if that witness had been aware that shortly after Ad, uh, Adam's or shortly after Lena's death, that Adam had been carrying on with another woman. And whenever he asked that question, the defense objected and, and they, the judge called them up to the bench and the defense attorney is saying, this is really unfair because we're talking about after his wife is gone. Why are you bringing up his actions after she's gone? How does that have anything to do with what kind of relationship that they had? And, and you're asking someone if, if she was aware, a friend, if she's aware of this, and so the judge said, basically, he ruled that it was not relevant and that it, that he was not allowed to ask that question. But the defense attorney is saying, well, you already heard, the, the jury already heard this question. So by hearing the question, they know that it happened. So they tried to ask for a mistrial, but the judge said that he could just tell them to disregard it. And he and he believed that that the jury would would not consider it. So I guess these judges have faith in people. I think it's hard to get something out of your head once you know. Yeah, I think the one the one of the most fascinating parts of this case is everything that happened with the medical examiners on both sides. Yeah, for sure. Because we haven't even gotten to the defense. Because we're still on the direct examination of the prosecution. And the defense is doing a great job of pretty much picking apart every little thing. And that's what really good defense attorneys do. It's another thing I've learned here is that that's what they do. They, the prosecution, they line out their story. The prosecution comes up with a story of what likely happened. And many times they don't know what actually happened. And so they have to almost create this the scenario that's a little bit fictionalized because they really don't know the true details. They have to fill in the gaps with well, it could have been this or it could have been that. And they have to basically make a really good guess. And then the, the defense that opens up the defense to poke holes into in that, because if what they're saying could have happened, didn't really happen, that's really easy for the defense to poke holes and say, well, that couldn't have happened this way because, and then they can come up with a reason. And I've, I've figured out that this is the little game that they play back and forth with each other. And it's really, it's, I mean, this is people's lives here. This is what is, it drives me crazy sometimes when I'm doing these stories, because I'm just like, this is for one thing, you have this entire family going through this horrible thing. Someone died. Then you have someone on on trial, what if they didn't do it? And you, people are just playing this back and forth game rather than just speaking plainly about what this is what happened. This is who was involved. Here is the evidence. Decide. It's not like that. It's so it's like a it's like theater. And it almost comes down to who is the better actor and who's better at coming up with a story or who's com better with coming coming back with a rebuttal. And this defense attorney is really good. 
because he is really good at poking holes at the prosecution's every single witness that gets up there. He finds a way of turning that witness into a witness for the defense. So that afternoon, the crime scene technician testified that her fingernails, Lena's fingernails, had traces of her own blood and tissue, suggesting that she had clawed at something around her neck. So there was something around her neck, and then she had taken her hands and was trying to grab whatever that was to get it away from her neck. And then in doing that, she scratched herself. So the prosecutor called a physicist to the stand who said that it would have been physically impossible for Lena to have fallen off the toilet and then land with her head draped over the magazine rack. And that was the prosecution's case. They, they put all their witnesses up there. They put their experts up there. Then the defense comes in to launch its case. And Lena's mother, her own mother, got on the stand and told the jury that she and her family loved Adam and that after Lena's death, they had become even closer. She testified that in the weeks leading up to her death, Lena had complained of headaches. She complained of feeling weak and that she was trying yoga to relieve her headaches this kind of scares me because I, I get headaches sometimes, but I know mine's stress because <laughs> I know what mine is. But the yoga thing reminds me because I've been thinking about trying yoga or Pilates or something like that. So I'm like, oh, dear. But you know how medical people are. We always like think we're suffering from whatever, th- you know, it always goes to your head. Do you ever do you ever have something like that happen? Like you get a headache and you think, oh, dear, I think I have a brain tumor right here. I can feel it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I was in nursing school, I think there were like 50% of our class had brain tumors. We were, yeah. <laughs> we had everything. Yeah, medical school is the same. You have everything, everything. You read about it and you, you can literally see the symptoms. It's insane. So she was trying yoga to relieve her headaches and complaining of feeling weak. And then this happens. And her, her own mother testifies to this. I don't think that her mom would get on the stand and testify to this and back her husband if she wasn't 100% sure that that he didn't do it. Don't you think she would have had something in her heart that would have told her if if he did it? I just, that to me is probably one of the strongest pieces of evidence, the fact that her her mother was so strongly in his corner and said that she was having some symptoms before. So... There was a Miami-Dade Fire and Rescue Captain, Joseph Carmen, who was the first responder who went to the house and found Adam giving CPR to Linda, to, or excuse me, to Lena. And he said that Adam was wearing a t-shirt and boxer shorts. And they presented that testimony because it was consistent with Adam's story that he just got up after, you know, had just been sleeping. So Thomas Hill was a Broward County Sheriff's crime scene investigator. He got on the stand for the defense and criticized the investigators that handled the case because he said that they didn't collect important physical evidence. He said they didn't get Adam's clothing, which is crazy. I just thought these were, I mean, in this 
we have forensic files have been around for like 20 years now, law and order, all of these things. I can't imagine being a crime scene investigator. I don't know any, I don't know anything about, you know, doing that sort of thing, but wouldn't you collect the person's clothing that was maybe the number one suspect? That's what I would think anyway. And they said they, so they didn't get the clothing. They didn't even get the magazine rack who, I mean, that's, he was saying that she was draped over the magazine rack. They didn't get the magazine rack. They didn't get bedding from the master bedroom. He said that he didn't see any sign of evidence of, or he didn't see any evidence of struggle in the bathroom there. And that's a very tiny, it's kind of like a little, you know, like in some bathrooms you have like a little closet like thing off to the side with the toilet in it. And it's all that's in there is just the toilet. That's kind of what this, it's like a little area where it's very small. So he was saying that it seemed really unlikely that that happened in that small area and there wouldn't be any sign of a struggle kicking the walls or anything like that. And she probably most likely would have made gouge marks in Adam's arms. He's wearing a t-shirt. He didn't have any, anything like that on him, any claw marks or anything from, from her fighting back. Then the really interesting thing is Palm Beach County Chief Medical Examiner John Maricini testified that the forensic pathologist in the Kaufman case had overlooked her history of health problems, which in his opinion included heart disease. So now what do you think about that from a medical doctor's point of view, the fact that this uh, this is Dr. John Marcini. He is a doctor. He is a he is a medical examiner, and he said that she did have undiagnosed heart disease. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the role of doctors in our legal system is controversial. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not this happens to be a homicide case. I don't know when you look at uh, cases of uh, malpractice or negligence. It's often that the you know, one side or the other can always find a doctor to, 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 to say the opposite. Mm-hmm. Part of it is that they're just taking advantage of a situation that has shades of gray, right? But yeah, I mean, honestly, you can always find a, a doctor to, to counter what another doctor yes. saying. And, and for <laughs> me, as a, someone maybe who's just completely removed from this whole situation, I'm not in the legal profession. So just as someone looking at this situation, I would probably think, well, the prosecution doesn't have a motivation to try to find a doctor to say what they want them to. To me, they should be trying to find, just find the truth, then prosecute based on the truth that they found. Whereas the defense, clearly, they're getting paid to defend their client. And so yeah, but both, but both parties are lawyers. And that's what I'm <laughs> discovering is that they, yeah. it's not, it doesn't work that way. The pro- prosecutors yeah. kind of are in the same boat. They, they may, they want to win. They the want to win. Yeah. And, and if you want, if you want to win the case, you got to make sure that every single witness you and, and expert that you're calling to stand supports your case. Yeah. Which is really scary because the most important thing should be finding the truth and, and convicting the, the right person or convicting the person if, the, if they, in fact, did it. In this case, did she die of natural causes or not? This doctor is saying 
that she did not die of unnatural causes, that there was not a homicide, there wasn't a murder. And then Dr. Michael Baden, who he's been involved in a lot of, he is a, a forensic pathologist who has been involved in a lot of celebrity trials and cases. I believe he was involved, if I'm not mistaken, I'm making this up off the top of my head, because I think I remember he was involved in that Epstein uh, case recently that went on. I might be wrong about that, but I, I want to say I remember seeing his name mixed in with all that. But he, he agreed that there was not a homicide and there was not a murder and that she died of natural causes. He testified that in his expert opinion, Dr. Hyma had based his homicide ruling on the work of two rookie pathologists who had gotten it wrong. And he said that Lena Kaufman died of a heart attack and that the injuries from her throat were from hitting the magazine rack and that they had been exacerbated by bungled resuscitation attempts by Adam Kaufman and the paramedics. And so after his testimony, the defense rested its case. They did not put Adam on the stand. They always say that's a bad idea. I think most defense attorneys don't like for their, they don't like putting people on their own, the defendant on the stand. For some reason, they're scared to death that they're going to say something wrong or come across to the jury, I guess, as guilty. And so they just, he, he didn't take the stand. And because they had portrayed their marriage as blissful, Judge Miller allowed the prosecution to put a rebuttal witness on the stand. Her name was Farah Kornblum, and she she and the defendant, she said that she and the defendant started an affair a month after Lena's death. The witness said that she ended the relationship after she realized he was not ready to move on following his wife's death. And so by casting a light on, a sympathetic light on the defendant, it may have really done more harm than good, once again, for the prosecution, because it kind of almost looked like maybe he was looking to just have a distraction from what was going on and the grief that he was suffering, and then realized he he wasn't able to move on. And, that, and so once again, I, I, don't, I don't understand this prosecution, how in the world they don't know that these people are going to say what they're going to say when they go on the stand. I, It's pretty shocking to me, but both sides closed their argument on Monday, June the 4th. And then the next day, the case went to the jury. And then at five o'clock that evening, the jury returned with a verdict of not guilty. So they did not find him guilty of his wife's murder, which is crazy. And the thing is, I thought was really the most fascinating thing about this whole thing. And you talked about the medical examiners and and how, and this is a, and I know everybody has to be thinking, how is this a bad doctor story? But my thing is, 48 hours went and found a, a chief medical examiner, I believe forensic pathologist from Kentucky. And this doctor has no connection whatsoever with the prosecution, with the defense, or anyone. just not connected. So CBS is like, hey, look at this. What do you think? Look at all this evidence. Look at her medical history. And I guess they took slides of her heart. And that doctor said, no, she had undiagnosed heart failure. He actually saw that she had myocarditis. And he agreed that she most likely died of natural causes. And the fainting spells 
were probably somehow, the headaches and the fainting spells were probably somehow related to that. And she just never went to the doctor. I, I do, I have a friend who was diagnosed with heart failure in her early 30s. And it was shocking because she was like the most healthy looking person. It was just a congenital. It was just some something that has just always been there. And she, it wasn't something, it wasn't a lifestyle thing. It was just a, something that happened. And you, we always think of things we do to ourselves to cause things, but sometimes there's not something that we necessarily did to ourselves. Sometimes our, we just get cancer or we get heart heart problems, you know, and that that's what he's saying happened here. She just had cardiac problems that was, was undiagnosed and she died because of it. What do you think about that? I still, doesn't expl- I, I still don't buy the explanation for the marks around her neck. Well, what they said, okay, and this is um, somewhere in that story. And I can't remember because I I read, I watched the whole video and then I read a lot of different accounts of it. And one thing that I, because that was another thing that I did have a problem with as well. And one thing, an explanation that made sense to me was that I want to say it was the doctor who, I want to say it was the doctor who was not connected with either side that said this, that when, if, if you can't breathe, your first instinct is to put your hands up around your neck. And if she was going in, was in respiratory distress because of her heart failing, something had happened. He, he felt like she got developed some sort of arrhythmia and that caused her, the, the arrhythmia caused her, I'm thinking something like RVR, AFib with RVR, supraventricular tachycardia or something, I don't, something like that. But she no. couldn't breathe. She panicked and she was putting her hands up around her neck. And in doing that, trying to, you know, just in distress, unable to breathe in the bathroom, on the floor. I don't know. That's what, that was his explanation. Right. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the defense did a good job. They, they, you know, you have to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And they definitely introduced enough doubt in this case. Yes. And I, my thing is, and the reason that I'm making, I wanted to make this not only, I know I'm jumping through a lot of hoops to try to make this into a a good nurse, bad nurse story, because I thought the story was so fascinating, but it is, but I do, I really did want to shed light on medical examiners and exactly what you were talking about. And that is the role that medical professionals play in the criminal justice system and coming in and per, and giving their expert opinion and how jurors, I believe, put a lot of faith in the testimony of these people, especially the ones on the side of the prosecution. I think that they a lot of them really consider the people on the side of the prosecution as just being the good guys. Like, they were, you don't have a reason to say that that it was um, homicide. You're, you're, you're on the side of the prosecution. You're on the state. You're, you're on the side of the state. You're, you should be neutral. But I don't think exactly what you said. I don't think they're neutral. I think they're, they are on the side, the side of that attorney who needs to win a case and they want to win the case at whatever cost there is. And that plays a big role. And I think people need to be aware that that goes on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Still sad that a woman died, though. Oh, it's just really it's sad. just awful, and it's really that whole yeah. thing is really terrible. The way that everything played out, and it's it's she's gone, and her family had to go through years, suffer through years of trials and media and all of the attention that that 
that they had to go through. It's just unfortunate. And I guess her whole family, his family, everyone, they are 100% convinced that there is just no way that he did this. There's nobody that comes down on the side of thinking that he he did it. Which is yeah. That's another thing I that makes me just think, wow. You know, the human body is just so complicated. I just think there's so much about it that we just don't know. And there we we want to believe that we know everything. Levi, my son, my 15-year-old hit his head a few years ago when he was in 5th grade. He's 15 now. He was like 10 or 11 or something. And he hit his head on a garage door. It was coming down and he was trying to jump over the sensor and get underneath it without and and it came down and hit him on the top of the head. He went into he it, he had a severe concussion and ended up he went on about his business and we didn't realize he had a concussion. I was at work at the time. And then he started just speaking in babble. To, totally like none of his words were making any sense. He was speaking words and they were all jumbled and they he was trying to talk. Later on he told us that I knew what I wanted to say and I could understand what you were saying, but I, every time I would try to say what I wanted to say, the words would come out completely wrong. And so we ended up having to see a neurologist forever over, over getting his head hit by a garage door. You would never, I'm still flabbergasted that this happened. And the neurologist, he's a wonderful child neurologist in this area. He's just, he's one of the best. And he said, we don't know a lot about the brain. He said, I know I'm a neurologist. And I know you probably want all these answers, but we don't know a lot about really. We don't know a lot about the human body and we don't know a lot. Everything there is to know about the human body. And we don't know a lot about the brain. And I just feel like so, there are so many things that could happen and people expect answers. And if you don't get an answer, you assume something sinister happened. Somebody must mm-hmm. have done something, especially in the situation where the husband found founder and you could just put all this I feel like you can put all of this evidence together in a way that makes it look like oh yeah he must have done something and I I don't know I I definitely am glad that they didn't find him guilty because I don't think that there's enough evidence for sure to say that he's guilty 100 percent yeah so we have a really neat good doctor story I thought this was so did you watch the video of (laughs) I did yeah this one I saw the video I watched that (laughs) over and over again I could not stop watching it because one thing that the person, the woman with the dog, I was like, she's acting awfully like that wasn't that big of a deal. So this guy is a, he's an internal medicine doctor in Florida, another doctor in Florida, which I didn't do that on purpose. It just happened, but he's in Tampa, the Tampa Bay area. And he had just gotten off shift and was going back to his apartment. He stopped by his parents' house to get a plate of food. And this was right around Christmas. Um, This was just recently. And so he's holding a plate of food. He walks into the lobby of his apartment. This woman is, is I couldn't tell if she's getting off the elevator, but her dog's late. I could also not, I could not figure out what actually happened either. How'd that leash get stuck? And I watched the video multiple times to try to figure that out. I'm like, how did this leash get stuck in the elevator? (laughs) Yes. So he walks up and he saw sees his neighbor getting off the elevator with her dog. And then as soon as she gets 
off, he saw the leash. The leash was still inside the elevator, but the woman and her dog were not on the elevator. And so when the elevator takes off and goes up, the leash goes up and then the dog goes too because the dog's still attached to the leash. Yeah. And he is, he just very quickly, and these surveillance videos are funny because they're kind of choppy, you know, they don't show everything exactly fluid. It's not mm -hmm. exactly HD TV. And yeah. so, but you see him walking up, drop his plate, and then just reach right up and very quickly unhook that dog from that leash. And that could have ended so badly. I mean, that was very quick thinking. Yeah, he, the way he how fat he reacted super fast. Yeah, and I know, and yeah. and I know that she must have been really grateful, but it didn't look like it in the video. She just turned around and walked on off with her dog. I was like, "How yeah. are you not?" <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, the the video didn't have any audio. Who knows? Maybe she thanked. <laughs> the other thing it was the dog. By the time the leash went up. The dog was pretty high. Yes. When you, like when you think about the top of an the top of an elevator door, yeah. I mean this this doctor was quite tall, and that's why he was able to get to that I leash. I, I don't think the the owner was a woman who was a bit shorter, so I don't think she would have been able to do the same yeah. thing. It was too she high. Would have been oh, that would have been a horrible, vulnerable situation to be in because I'm pretty sure she would have probably. I'm sure she would have probably tried to go get help, but by the time they were, would anyone could come to help. Without him acting like that, that because he the dog was already making like whimpering and choking sounds, so it wouldn't have had long, and I'm pretty sure it would have either snapped its neck or cut off its airway, and and it would have probably not survived that. So quick thinking and quick action and tall jeans <laughs> helped save the day. So that was a fun story. So I guess that's. That wraps it up for another episode of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing your experience. Of course. Yes. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate love, it. Love the show. Of course, you know, I have a strong affinity for nurses as well. Thank you. I think nurses are the heroes of our healthcare system. You are the experience that most patients have when they are interacting with our healthcare system. So you guys are the face of it. So, and nothing gets done without you guys. <laughs> Every doctor knows that. Better keep the nurses happy or else nothing's going to get oh, done. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. The, we yeah. are all, we're all a team. We all have to work together. And I love what you're doing, working to try to improve our system and hopefully help our staffing issue, um, staffing shortages. Maybe this will be a way that we can turn around and, uh, this problem and improve, Absolutely. yeah, improve the the problem, the issues that we have with staffing. Absolutely. And if anyone in your audience is interested, uh, they're welcome to reach out to us anytime. And they can also sign up at IncredibleHealth.com. Of course. Absolutely. Well, you guys be sure and of course, go to IncredibleHealth.com forward slash good nurse and sign up and make a profile. You can just go on there and make a profile and just see what it's all about. Even if they're not in your state, you can just go on and just, because I'm, who knows, maybe they'll come to your state at some point or your, your, your area, or maybe you're looking for a job. Maybe you're so many people that I work with move to our hospital from out of state. It happens That's all right. the time. All the, all time. the time. One third, one third of the nurses hired on our platform are relocating from a different yeah, state. All the time we get, we have one from Texas. We have several from Florida, one from Georgia, all over the place. So 
If you guys are interested, go on to incrediblehealth.com forward slash good nurse and create a profile, see what it's all about. And if I guess if there are any nurse managers or hospital administrators listening, can they get in touch with you? Absolutely. They can reach out to us the same way. They can through our website as well. Okay, wonderful. Well, guys, you can also find me on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse on our Instagram page, or you can go to Facebook at GNBN Podcast. Go to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. Send me an email. I love getting your stories. Christine and I are working on, uh, Christine with Antidotes Podcast and I are working on a special episode about the, the case of the doctor in Ohio who has been arrested for 25 counts of murder. And I have a lot of updated information now because after, since I released that episode Monday, I've been hearing, been hearing from some people who are connected with this hospital. So my opinion might have changed a little just to let you guys know, (laughs) because, and I said in that episode that I had not researched it because at first I'm always going to come down on the side of the healthcare professional. Always. Having said that, I've researched it a little more now. And um, we'll, we're going to be releasing a new episode at some point, a special episode about that story. So be looking up, out for that. And I want you guys to also remember, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>